This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This week on The Takeout, we're eating corned beef, cabbage, and potatoes with Irish ambassador to the United States, Daniel Mulhall. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen... Please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things principally. What are those two things? Well, one, relentlessly curious. Two, steadfastly non-ideological. All voices and points of view welcome here at The Takeout. We take issues seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. And one thing we also do, you know we like to experiment. A lot of experimentation going on with this episode. Not with the guest necessarily, but the location. I'm going to say this. We're in a homey, undisclosed location somewhere in Washington, D.C. That's as far as I'll go. You'll see someone in the background. Her name is Jess. Jess is a classically trained chef and nutrition expert based right out of here in Washington, D.C. Jess specializes in putting a healthy spin on gourmet favorites. To find out more about her services, please go to www.chefjessdc.com. She'll be making lunch for us, and I'm happy to say because it will be in concert with our guest, who I'll introduce in a moment, whiskey-glazed corned beef, kale, and cabbage with baby purple potatoes and carrot puree. I don't think I've ever eaten as well as I will eat today on this episode. And that goes well with our guest, and I know I've been dragging this out. For God's sake, Major, who's the guest? For God's sake, introduce him. Daniel Mulhall is our guest. He is the ambassador from Ireland here in the United States. We had him on briefly during the uh, open mic session at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Mr. Ambassador, it was great to meet you then. It's great now to meet you again. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, the last time was a bit of noise in the background. A little a bit of noise. In the, yeah, we, 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 I had the, the, I had the band here. with me last time. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, or, the orchestra doesn't follow me everywhere I go, just to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. As you may see arrayed on the table, a little bit of orange juice. The uh, ambassador is going to have it straight. I'm going to top mine off with... Uh, well, let's see, a little spirit for the afternoon. New vodka, that's spelled N-E-U, Texas-made, award-winning vodka, six times distilled and gluten-free. In these gluten-conscious times, I'm told that's very important. So there you go. I'll be having that while we uh, have... What was that? Spelling again. N-U-E. Is that right? That's right. N-U-E. See, look at that. There you go. Not N-E-U, right? Right, N-U-E. There we go. Thank you. All right, that goes down smoothly. Brexit does not. Let us start there, Mr. Ambassador. For my audience, which you know is prominently made up of Americans, why should they care about the future of Brexit and the United Kingdom? And then, secondarily, the issues that are very important. 
to Ireland as that debate continues? Well, first of all, the European Union is part of the fabric of transatlantic relations, which have delivered peace and prosperity to Europeans and Americans for more than 70 years now. And um, that has been done through NATO. We're not members of NATO, but we acknowledge that NATO has played a major role in bringing security to Europe. But the European Union has also played a major role in binding together the 28 countries of the European Union. And, for example, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the former members of the Warsaw Pact ended up as members of the European Union, which they are today. So the European Union has played a major role in the development of the world we know today, uh, the transatlantic relationship, uh, which has, as I say, brought peace and prosperity to Europeans and Americans. And therefore, um, changes in the European Union are of natural interest to the United States. And the departure from the EU of a major member like the United Kingdom does pose challenges for the European Union, and therefore... Does it pose economic risks for the average American? Well, um, the the United Kingdom is a a major trading partner of the United States. The European Union is Is a major trading partner. partner. So I think the United States' interests would be in having future thriving trading relationships with the United Kingdom and with the European Union. And therefore, anything that damages the economies of the European Union and the United Kingdom cannot be good for those countries, obviously, but it can't be good for the United States either. So I think we all have a, an interest in our economies doing well. And Brexit is undoubtedly... I don't, I don't know of any economist, any sensible economist, who thinks that Brexit will be economically beneficial to anybody. And just I think the question is whether it will right. be a, um, a sort of a hit of reasonable proportions or a, you know, a catastrophic hit. And there are different views uh, around the place about how great the impact will be. But nobody thinks that Brexit will do anything other than reduce the GDP of the United Kingdom and of many European countries that have close trading relationships with the UK. And Mr. Ambassador, I don't like to skip over things. Uh, Brexit, what that means is, for those who are still possibly curious about that, that means the United Kingdom leaves the European Union and therefore creates a different trading relationship with those countries and everyone around it. Yes, at the moment, it's still in. At the moment, the United Kingdom um, is a member of the European Union, which means that it trades freely with the other 27 members of the Union. And also, of course, is part of free trade agreements that the EU has with various countries around the world, including the most recent one was Canada, for example. So it avails of all those trading opportunities. And about 40% of the UK's exports currently go to the other members of the European Union. And the current risk is that the UK will crash out of the European Union on the 31st of, of October. October. right? Even though the British Parliament has come out firmly against that, so we have to see what happens there. But if it were to crash out, for example, it would be moving from having been part of the, the biggest and most advanced free trade area in the world, that is the European Union, to having no trading relationship, no basis for trading with its nearest neighbours who make up 40% of its exports. For example, NAFTA makes up, the countries of NAFTA, Mexico and Canada, make up 26% of U.S. exports. The U.S. is aiming to replace NAFTA with the USMCA. Correct. But meanwhile, NAFTA remains in place. Yes. 
so that your trading relations with those countries continue to operate smoothly under NAFTA until, until such time as the USMCA comes it. into place. The risk is that the UK leaves the European Union and there's nothing in its place and nobody has ever, no country has ever done this before that I'm aware of and therefore we are in uncharted, unprecedented territory. And the risk of that is that it will create enormous economic disruption, mainly for the United Kingdom, but also for the European Union, and most particularly for Ireland, because we're the closest geographical neighbour of the UK, and we have a land border with Northern Ireland. And that's where most of the concern arises in Ireland about Brexit is, what will the implications be for that land border on the island of Ireland? I'm glad you mentioned the land border, because I want to refresh our audience's memory of something you said to us when we were talking at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, Arden, that's number two. The border in Ireland goes through households, it goes through farms, it goes through villages. It has no physical basis. And for the last 25 years since peace was established in Northern Ireland, and because of the European Union, there's been no need to have any border controls on the island of Ireland. The fear is that if Britain leaves the European Union and leaves the Customs Union, Customs controls will be required between North and South. Mr. Ambassador, that sounds conceptually impossible to me, to have a customs process between a farm or between a house well, it, it's, or it, a village. It, 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 it seems, I mean, you could um, conceptually imagine, you could draw it on a chalkboard, but I don't see how it works in real no, life. It's extremely difficult, and clearly um, it, it won't be a border in... I mean, many borders have a physical basis. They have a river or a mountain range between two countries. Um, in the Irish case, the border uh, with Northern Ireland is old county borders, which really, until Ireland became divided uh, in 1922, there was no no basis for those. There was simply administrative units. So it will be very difficult to imagine how you could have customs controls. The risk is that... And our, our, our government has said that, that, that it does not intend to have uh, controls on the border in Ireland because of the risk that that would pose to the peace process, the Good Friday Agreement, which the United States played such a major role in bringing about, helping to bring about. But they recognize that if Northern Ireland is in a different customs regime, a different regulatory regime from the rest of Ireland, that will mean that something will have to be done to protect the integrity of the European single market. Because if you have a single market and goods can flow from outside that single market into the single market, then obviously that undermines the integrity of the single market. And we have said that we are committed to preserving the integrity of the single market. Let me stop you right there. We'll pick up our conversation on the other side of the break. I'm Major Garrett. We're at a homey, undisclosed location in Washington, D.C. The special guest this week, Irish Ambassador Daniel Mulholland. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. That's me, and boy, do we love to experiment. Lots of experimentation going on today here at this homey, undisclosed location in Washington, D.C. Jess, our private chef is here. Jess, you have lunch ready for us for the ambassador and myself. Irish Ambassador Daniel Mulhall is our guest. Jess, explain what's going on here. All right. So here we have a whiskey glazed brisket, a little bit spicy with a little bit of whiskey um, in our in our sauce. We also have baby purple potatoes over a kale and cabbage mix with a little bit of carrot puree. I think the ambassador fiercely <laughs> objects to the whiskey part, right? Oh, That's well, just terrible. Well, as long as it's the right I kind apologize. of whiskey, I'm yeah, all right. As long as it's Irish whiskey. Right kind, yeah. whiskey. As long as it's Irish whiskey, which is um, increasing its, uh, its uh, sales all the time in the United States. Uh, <laughs> 
I'm glad to have presided over a 30% increase in whiskey sales over the last uh, two years. <laughs> I'm not I sure mean, you... I, I won't claim credit for it, because, yeah. but I've encouraged everyone I can to, uh, you know, drink Irish whiskey. And uh, to, Mr. Uh, Ambassador, I would, I would uh, venture to observe that it might be an external political factor in America that's having more to do with the consumption increase of Irish whiskey. <laughs> I won't I disclose <laughs> or suggest who that outside political actor might or might not be, but I think we all have a pretty good idea. So you mentioned, as we were going to the break, um, a couple of things that I want to explore a little bit more sure. deeply with you, Mr. Ambassador, which is the peace process, which the United States was deeply involved in. How is the peace process, the Good Friday Accords, in any way influenced by the outcome of Brexit? Well, 1998, um, thanks to the intervention of the United States government and uh, Senator George Mitchell, who played a major role in as a broker um, between the parties, we had a a peace agreement was arrived at, and the last 20 years have been 20 years of peace in that there's been no... I mean, there have been incidents, of course. There was a, a tragic incident earlier this year. A young journalist was killed. Um, but but um, those incidents have... By comparison with the previous... With the previous 20 years, you know, it's been... It's Huge, huge, huge decrease. Uh, advance. Now, in recent months, we've seen a, a spiral, a spiking of, uh, of, of tension... In Northern Ireland, there have been a few. There was a car bomb went off there a few months ago. Um, there was another bomb recently that was diffused. So tensions are clearly ratcheting up. Now, I wouldn't attribute that entirely uh, to Brexit. Um, it has to do partly with the fact that there's a political vacuum in Northern Ireland in that the, the government of, of Northern Ireland, under the Good Friday Agreement, has to have unionists and nationalists uh, working together. Right. And that government, that administration, fell apart um, two and a half years ago now, in January of uh, 2017. And, and despite Herculean efforts on the part of the Irish government and the British government and others, uh, it hasn't been possible to put the, um, the executive back together again. So there has been a political vacuum, and that, of course, is quite dangerous. Now, into that political vacuum situation, you throw in the, the difficulties... Uh, generated by Brexit and, and that of course is why Brexit is such a, a worry for our government in that if you end up somehow with some kind of hard border on the island of Ireland in the view of the Irish government certainly and in the view of most observers that will certainly uh, increase tensions further now I'm not saying that there will be definitely be a return to violence that would be irresponsible right. to say I would never say that and nobody should say that but it would certainly it would certainly increase the tension further and we could do that. We could do. To, we could do with avoiding that because the situation is fragile at the moment in Northern Ireland. Um, the summer is traditionally a tense period with marches and counter marches and so on. This year, there were a lot of tensions, but uh, there was no um, major um, outbreak of violence. Um, but but it's but it's always there as a possibility, and we can't take it for granted. And therefore, we have to do everything we can to make sure that Brexit doesn't damage peace in Northern Ireland. And for my audience, if you could, and this is an enormously large topic, and I'm going to impose upon you the burden of trying to give a brief tutorial yes. of the fractious relationship between Ireland and the United Kingdom historically, and then why uh, those in Ireland might feel put upon by this whole Brexit thing, because it intensifies the sense of animosity that many Irish have felt toward the United Kingdom historically. Well, the first thing to say is that relations between Ireland and the UK have never been better than never they have been been better, over right. the last four or five years, right. or the last, last 20 years, since the Good Friday Agreement. And, for example, I was in London... I mean, the Good Friday Agreement created a whole new oh, It created a whole paradigm. new world between Britain and Ireland, between North and but South and Ireland. Give a tutorial for why it was so difficult is, before. Okay, okay. 12th century, um, 
the British um, government, uh, British king, uh, invaded Ireland uh, and established his uh, nominal control over Ireland. The following centuries were centuries of conflict, but um, let's, let's let's move forward to the 19th century when um, the old Irish Parliament was abolished. An Act of Union was created between the British and Irish Parliaments, and Ireland became part of the United Kingdom. From then on, there was a struggle, mainly through parliamentary means, um, by Irish nationalists to try and either restore the the old devolved parliament, the old regional parliament in Ireland that had gone back centuries before 1800, or to secure independence. Independence was secured in 1922, following the Easter Rising and a war of independence that lasted two years from 1919 to 1921. At that time, Ireland was divided into... Uh, Northern Ireland, the six counties of Northern Ireland, remain part of the United Kingdom because in Northern Ireland um, there's a divided set of opinions. You have about half the population sees itself as British uh, and wants to remain part of the UK. And then a little less than half the population sees itself as Irish. Some of those would like to see Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland becoming a united Ireland. Hence this phraseology, nationalist unionist. Nationalist unionist, yeah. I mean, you can say nationalists tend to be Catholics, that's true. Uh, unionists tend, tend to be Protestant. Protestant. Right, but it's not universal. It's not universal, but it's, but it's, pretty, it's pretty close to that. Um, and, you know, unionists obviously have, have, a, have a range of views. Some are, are, are very happy to see um, closer relations between North and South, um, um, you know, and closer relations, you know, between the governments in Belfast and Dublin. Others are a little more resistant, a little more sceptical about that. Um, so there are different ra- different views within the unionist community and within the nationalist community. But broadly speaking, um, there are two different identities in Ireland, and that has created tension. And they those tensions um, generated a period of conflict in Northern Ireland between 1969 and uh, 94, we call it the Troubles. And uh, those Troubles were resolved by the Good Friday Agreement. And we earnestly hope that we can avoid any turning back of the clock to the bad old days when Ireland was a place of conflict. Now it's a place of peace. But that and peace prosperity. Is not, and that and prosperity. Brought prosperity. I mean, you know, um, um, both parts of Ireland, but especially our part of Ireland. I mean, when we joined the European Union in 1973, Ireland was by far the poorest of the nine then member states of the European Union. Today, we're one of the most prosperous. Um, we've caught up on all of our European neighbours and become an outstanding European success story. And that's why 90% of our population uh, is happy to be for Ireland to be a member of the European Union. And I would make the point that those who say that in some way EU membership is incompatible with independence are not simply fail to understand the reality of the European Union. I represent a fully sovereign, independent country that's also a member of the European Union, and there is no contradiction between those two statements. Unfortunately, people in Britain, some people in Britain, have come to the conclusion that that their independence is in some way uh, limited by their membership of the European Union, hence the Brexit process. For me, Brexit is is a... It was a misstep on on the part of the UK, and there's a, a very divided set of opinions now. In the and UK. yet, and yet, and this is the thing you keep recurring a recurring theme in this writhing that the United Kingdom is going through in public. We have to live up to the democratic verdict rendered in that referendum, and to do anything less would to would be to either abolish or de- severely diminish a democratic voice and process 
Well, because how do you view that? Well, because we in Ireland um, regularly have have referendums because we have a written constitution. In Britain, there is no written constitution, and therefore, the problem that's arisen in Britain, as I understand it, is that yes, there was a decision in a referendum to leave the European Union, but the the details of Britain's departure from the European Union are things that have to be negotiated. And at the moment, there is no consensus in Britain. And that was not voted on. That was not voted on. And it couldn't be voted on. I mean, in our case, we're always voting on changing the wording of our constitution. So it's precise. No one can be under any illusions about what it means. You know, There was imprecision in Brexit. So, for example, we had a referendum, we, uh, we had a referendum on, on, on marriage equality. Uh, four Very years precise. ago, um, and it was a precise. You know, the people voted in favour of allowing marriage equality in Ireland. The, I'm going to stop you right there, Mr. Ambassador, because I've got a break I've got to sure. deal with. But we'll pick that up a thought, and I'll let you have some so, of this because I've eaten it already. Yeah, spectacular. It's spectacular! No, it's delicious. It really is delicious. Well done, Jess. Well done, Jess. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Well, Boris is a friend of mine, and he's, uh, he's, he's going at it. There's no question about it. He's in there. I watched him this morning. He's, uh, he's in there fighting. And uh, he knows how to win. Boris knows how to win. Don't worry about him. He's going to be okay. That is the unmistakably identifiable voice of the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump, on September 4th, talking about the current British prime minister, uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, we are here are at our uh, very homey, undisclosed location in Washington, D.C., with the Irish ambassador of the United States, Daniel Mulhall. Um, Boris Johnson, uh, we're not going to ask you, Mr. Ambassador, to untangle all of the gyrations in British politics right now. I don't even think experts on that subject could adequately uh, rise to that task. But when the president says over and over uh, Boris Johnson is a winner, he's going to be all right. From a distance, it doesn't appear to be so. Either, either that he's winning or it's all all right. Well, I think the president has said repeatedly that he wants the U.S. to have a trade deal, a free trade agreement with the U.K. Right. following Brexit. And, he, and he's in favor of he, – he doesn't seem to be at all perturbed or in the least bit uh, nervous about a hard Brexit. Well, let me – be clear that we would also like to see the UK having a trade agreement with the US and with the EU and with everyone else after Brexit because they're our neighbours. And the better they do economically, the better it is for us because sure. we prosper from there. But how do we go from here to there? What we, and we've said it, and, and the President has said to our uh, Prime Minister, Tishak Radkar, he has said that he understands the need to protect the Good Friday Agreement. And Members of Congress, prominent members of Congress, including the Very Speaker, prominent members. have said that um, that if there was to be a free trade agreement that undermined the Good Friday Agreement and damaged the peace it would never get around, it wouldn't get uh, through Congress. Now, we don't want to see that situation arise, by the way. I mean, we would like to see a smooth, orderly, pragmatic, sensible Brexit, whereby the UK would leave on good terms with its neighbours and would then be able to develop its relations with the United States as it sees fit, but also having regard to the need to avoid a border on the island of Ireland and damaging the peace process by doing that. So I, I don't quibble with President Trump's enthusiasm for Brexit. He's well entitled to have a view on on, on Brexit. I do think that um, 
uh, it is important also to bear in mind what I said at the very beginning, that Brexit uh, does damage the European Union and therefore is not good for the um, transatlantic alliance overall. And that is something that I know many Americans are seriously um, committed to and want to preserve. So I do think that that the best outcome from the point of view of the United States, the European Union and the UK would be an orderly, sensible Brexit whereby the UK leaves but remains on good terms with its European neighbours. A slightly easier topic. How is that whiskey-glazed corned beef? You would be, I think, our resident expert on that. Well, well my mother um, was a great... Um, uh, corned beef. I would maker. assume so. Yes. Now I don't think she ever glazed the corned beef with whiskey. That wasn't part of our uh, of our culinary practice in Ireland in those days. But, How does um, Jess rate? But Jess rates very highly indeed, and um, it, it's 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 delicious. It really is, and I love the combination. I love the traditional corned beef as a traditional dish, but then the way she has um, combined it with kale. Again, kale was not something that we, we necessarily <laughs> not a lot of kale. We necessarily had a Mama's lot of table with a you. lot of, and nor do we have the, the this wonderful uh, vegetable here. So, so she's actually found a way of combining um, traditional recipe with um, some some modern ingredients, and I think that's the, because, frankly, Ireland has now, in the last twenty years, in my experience, become a real culinary island. I mean, there are. Five-star restaurants, there are um, Michelin-star restaurants all over the country now, even in quite small villages, would have a very good restaurant. So our appreciation of food has gone up enormously, and my appreciation of Jess is certainly well, very high you. indeed. I Jess, really I can't say that, that he's the most authoritative voice in Washington, <laughs> D.C., but he's the most authoritative voice at this table. <laughs> so well done. And I will, I will, I will well, heartily agree you. with the ambassador. Uh, the corned beef was spectacular, and so are all the great vegetables. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. And... Uh, this is a screwdriver is quite tasty. Remember, the <laughs> vodka, N-U-E, vodka, from Texas, Texas made. Texas vodka, wow. Award-winning vodka, <laughs> six times distilled and gluten-free. I didn't even know that was a thing, but apparently it's a thing. Mm. So tasty. All right, Mr. Ambassador, um, related to all of this is a good part of America is Anglophile and Irish. Yes. Uh, these are two cultures that are deeply embedded in our national psyche, in our national experience. Correct. And they're going through a phase right now that's completely new. And it seems at a distance to be not necessarily important, but I think it sort of strikes at some very fundamental things that most Americans can identify with, either Britain or Ireland or a combination of the two. And it just seems like a big moment, and it feels to me like a big moment, and we still don't know the outcome. Well, I think you can take it that whatever happens with Brexit, Ireland will seek to maintain the closest possible relationship with the UK. For example, one of the most important elements of our relationship is what's called the common travel area, which allows Irish people to live, work, study, and so on freely in the UK, as if they were UK citizens, and allows UK citizens the same rights in Ireland. And the two governments have agreed that whatever happens with Brexit, however bad Brexit gets that situation will continue. So there will continue to be free movement of people between Britain and Ireland, north and south and east and west, which is a very good thing, and that's a big relief because there is a huge number, 700,000 Irish-born people living in the UK, and people go back and forth all the time. It's the nearest country, so naturally, if you're Irish people, young Irish people want to get some experience, London is the obvious place to go to, and that will continue to be the case. So, so I do think that while 
there is this political difference and difficulty between the two countries at the moment. I don't believe that will undermine the commitment to a close relationship in the years and decades ahead. You do not. So I don't think that the United States will end up having to to take sides between Britain and Ireland. You know, it'd be almost is, impossible. For I mean, us this to is do not that. you know this is not a conflict between our two countries. It's simply that Britain has chosen to go in a different direction right. politically. It's not the direction that we're going to go in. But we respect their right to do that. I mean, one of the one of the proof that the European Union is not a sovereign state is the fact that you can voluntarily leave. Yeah, there's no there's no barrier to leaving the European Union. So, and yet the European Union does want to drive a hard bargain with the United Kingdom because it does not want to incentivize well, well, this behavior. I mean, it's just that that it, I put it this way: some of your readers will be members, listeners will be members of golf clubs. Mm-hmm. If you're a member of a golf club, you pay your fee. And you agree to abide by the rules of the club. Mm-hmm. And then you have the right to play the golf course. If you cease to be a member and you cease to abide by the rules and cease to pay your fee, you can't then expect to come and play the golf course anytime you like. You have to negotiate right. an arrangement. So basically, Britain is leaving the single market. And therefore, it has to negotiate an alternative set of arrangements, right. which cannot be as advantageous to Britain as what they have at the moment, which is membership. In other words, if you're a member of a golf club, if you leave the golf club, your rights cannot be greater when you leave than they <laughs> than were, they when, were, you were a member. when you were a member. Right. And, and that's the best analogy that I can think of. So it's not that we're driving, driving a hard bargain. The EU is simply trying to protect the single markets because if you're a member of the EU, you have access, free access to a single market of 500 million people. And therefore, when Britain leaves, it cannot have the same free access unconditionally. Of course, it can negotiate a very close relationship with the European Union, which will give it most of the advantages of single market membership, but it can't have the full thing. And the more, the closer it wants to be to the single market, the more it will have to be willing to obey the rules of the single market. So, for example, the reason the single market is important is that it's 27, 28 countries, and I have to be confident that if I buy a product made in Romania and I buy it in Ireland, that that product meets certain standards that I would expect it to meet. In the way that you, if you're here in Washington, D.C., and you buy a product from New Mexico, you are confident that because it's a U.S. state, the standard of that product will be up to the level that you regard as acceptable and necessary for your benefit. And enforceable. Right. And enforceable. So so the reason why we have rules in the EU is because consumer protection, uh, health and safety, all of these things, um, you know, food standards and so on. Um, so Britain, if it wants to have close economic cooperation with the EU, will have to be willing to accept the rules to ensure that Britain doesn't diverge from the European Union in ways that will create problems for the European Union and for European consumers. No, Britain, if you leave, you cannot play through. Uh, I'm Major (laughs) Garrett, back for segment four in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. The story of Brexit won't end if the United Kingdom ends the European Union on the 31st of October or even the 31st of January. There's no such thing as a clean break or just getting it done. I am ready to listen to any constructive ways in which we can achieve our agreed goals and resolve the current impasse. But what we cannot do and will not do, and I know you understand this, is agree to the replacement of a legal guarantee with a promise. 
That is the voice, and you may not recognize it, and if you don't, it's perfectly fine. You wouldn't necessarily recognize it. It's Leo Varadkar, who is the Taoiseach, or the Prime Minister of Ireland, and he was talking about the topic of this episode with the British ambassador, oh, forgive me, Irish ambassador of the United States, Daniel Mulhall. Forgive me, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, what was the Prime Minister of the Taoiseach get driving at there? What he was saying is that we have an agreement at the moment, which was negotiated and agreed between the government of Theresa May and the European Union. That agreement wasn't accepted by the Westminster Parliament. And he was saying, if you want to change that, mm-hmm. well and good. But you've got to come up with some proposals which Specific. are legally binding, legally effective, and not just a promise that, don't worry, everything will be fine. You see, the problem is the backstop, which is controversial in Britain, is designed, it's an insurance policy that if we can find another way of avoiding a border on the island of Ireland, the backstop guarantees that in all circumstances there will not be a hard border on the right. island of Ireland. And and therefore... Well, that, well, that customs enforcement in farms and along village lines, etc. Won't et happen. That, that basically, um, that customs, that Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK will remain in the customs union until an alternative solution is found, if one can be found. Now, the British are saying that, well, there are alternatives. And we say, fine, but let's, them out. let's have those alternatives, put them down on the table, and let, let, you, let them be legally binding. We can't accept that they say, well, uh, you get rid of the backstop, which is a legal, gar- legally binding guarantee, and in its place you get a promise that everything will be fine, we'll come up with something, don't worry, right. in the future. So what he's saying is that we won't buy... Um, this promise. We need an agreement that is that is legally watertight in the way that the backstop and the current withdrawal agreement uh, are. While I refresh my little screwdriver here with uh, our Texas vodka and UE new, uh, when I started covering the White House, among the first words I came across that I'd never heard before, but I had to learn and be able to say properly on air, was Taoiseach. What does that yes. mean? Well, it, it means in Gaelic, it means chief, but it's the but it's the word we use for prime minister. Okay, uh, but but in but in the Gaelic language, it it means chief, but but it's generally used now uh, in English as well as in Irish uh, to to describe our prime minister. So, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you become the ambassador of the United States, and is that the pinnacle of Irish diplomacy? Well, I'm certainly happy uh, that it is. Um, um, of course, different people would have different views about what's the most important posting. It's the one I'm enjoying more than any I've ever had before. And I've been in uh, in Germany as ambassador. I was in the UK before coming here. Now I'm in Washington. And I really enjoy immensely the job of being ambassador to the United States, especially because of the welcome we receive here from the 33 million Irish Americans. I don't meet them all, but I meet their representatives. And it's really uplifting to find people who's great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents came from Ireland having a having an interest in Ireland to this day. And uh, What about America that you didn't know you've discovered since being here? Well, I've discovered the diversity of America. I've discovered that really almost every American city has got its own personality, its own dynamism, its own... I kind of feel that America is almost like a a country of 200 city-states because every city seems to have its own brio, its own, its own drive. And I'm, I'm always impressed by places that... I would. I expected not to be impressed by, and when I am impressed by them, I go, "Wow, it's great the way they've managed to to redefine themselves and to find a new direction for their cities." So, so I'm very impressed by that. I, I, um, I haven't. I mean, I've been all over. I've been to 35 states now in the last uh, two years. 
uh, and I've enjoyed it immensely. And, you know, the connections are so deep between Ireland and the United States. The historical connections are there. The economic connections, you have 750 US companies investing right. in Ireland, employing about 150,000 people. You have 500 plus Irish companies with investments in the United States. So everywhere I go, I'm able to and visit. And a lot of that uh, post the Good Friday Accords. A lot of that in the last... 10 years, I would say. There's been a surge of investment because Irish companies are now profitable again. They're, you know, they're after the, the, the difficulties we had 10 years ago, we've had five years of fairly substantial growth, roughly 4.5% growth a year for the past five years. And this has driven the Irish economy to a, to a new level of success. And it means that our companies are now looking outside of Ireland for opportunities they're now less inclined to go to Britain because of Brexit. Brexit introduces an uncertainty factor into your investments in Britain. The United States is seen, therefore, as a more attractive option. And remember, when, we, when the UK leaves the European Union, we will be the only English-speaking country in the EU. And we expect that that will make Ireland even more attractive from the point of view of American companies. But also that Ireland will become a bit of a bridge between the European Union and the United States because we're the country that has maybe uh, the, the most instinctive understanding of the United States of any of our European partners so stereotypes are part of human nature uh, is there a european stereotype of america that you have found to be fundamentally untrue well i think the stereotype that i found to be untrue is this kind of notion of you know that north and south are fundamentally different in the united states and that east and west are different i found that everywhere i go i find variety i find i find that the stereotypes of, of, you know, red America and blue America are a bit sort of overwrought. overwrought. They're just a bit overdrawn because everywhere you go, you meet people with uh, different views. I have to say, I haven't really been able yet to get to small town America where I think maybe I, I would come across maybe a different set of attitudes. And uh, you see, in Ireland... Our attitudes have changed so much in recent years. We're now a kind of a bastion of, of progressivism and tolerance in Europe in that we have a 17% of our population now was born outside of Ireland, which is extraordinary. And we have no sort of anti-immigrant uh, sentiment uh, in our country. Uh, we've passed a referendum to uh, prove marriage equality. We um, removed the constitutional ban on abortion there last year. We've liberalised our divorce laws. Um, the country is open and and very tolerant these days. Now, I'm not saying that will be forever, but for the moment at least, I'm proud of the fact that our country has become this kind of... Um, bastion of progressivism in Europe when a lot of other European countries are going through um, you know uh, situations where you know you have a lot of uh, right-wing populist parties now we don't have a right-wing populist party in Ireland we're one of the few countries in Europe that doesn't have that and that's a reflection I think of the fact that the Irish still think of themselves as a nation of emigrants uh, and we know that the Irish were not always well treated when they went to other parts of the world, including the United States. We're going and to we don't want to make those mistakes in Ireland in the future. We're going to pick up on that thought about immigration in the uh, takeout, outtake especially. And we're also going to talk about some very vivid literary and cultural topics. Okay. Irish poetry, Irish contributions to literature, etc., etc. Also to find out from the ambassador if there's any greater American actress than Maureen O'Hara. I doubt it. <laughs> Mr. Mul Mr. Ambassador Daniel Mulhall, it's been a great pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll see you next week, folks. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farid, Katiana Korchenko, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. 
Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. This episode of The Takeout has been brought to you in part by New Vodka. Special thanks to Chef Jess. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. Bye. Bye-bye. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.